you have a moment. We'll we're recording some stuff. Oh, sorry. I'm oh. in a hurry. Okay, okay. no, no worries. worries. Okay. Tech, tech. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. No mai, hari mai, ki tik tik, Stuff's 2020 election podcast, mo te rahuroi, whiringau, nuku, tukau, ko Adam Dunning, tēnei. Ko Eugene Bingham, tēnei. Tēnā koutou koutou. We bring in the news, some of the more unusual things about this election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular kōrero. There are seven days until the election. So as you may have figured out from that kind of chorus at the top of the show, Eugene and I got out on the streets this week. We wanted to find out what people were still wondering about the cannabis and euthanasia referenda. And after we'd collected those questions, we went and found the answers. Like proper journalists. Yeah, kind of. But referendums aside, the campaign is really racing towards the finish line, isn't it? Labour and National and their leaders are the main act, of course. But... It's been interesting to see the minor party leaders too, and in some cases fighting for their political lives. Last week I was in the audience for the New South Nation Power Brokers debate where they had Marama Davidson, David Seymour, John Tamihiri, and Winston Peters. It was an interesting discussion, and it was kind of good to see the divisions and, and similarities of the various parties. At times during the night you could see how in some areas the Greens and the Māori Party had a bunch in common, but in other areas the unity was between the Māori Party and New Zealand First mostly when they got together to gang up on ACT. But you saw a similar theme on Thursday night's TVNZ minor party debate hosted by Jessica Much Mackay, except that this one, along with the Greens, New Zealand First, the Māori Party and ACT, you had Advanced New Zealand, represented by Jamie Lee Ross. He certainly seemed to be the odd man out, the only one who said he wouldn't want a COVID-19 vaccine if one became available, for instance. It's the Wild West, isn't it, being in a smaller party? The polls suggest that ACT's looking... Pretty secure, seeing they're consistently polling around 7 to 8%. But after that, things become less clear. The Greens are sort of teetering on the edge of the 5% they need, and it will really come down to results on the night and maybe those overseas votes, which they usually rely on. Meanwhile, New Zealand First is in the last chance saloon, really, seeing they're polling well below the 5% threshold. And if the Māori Party want a seat at the table, they'll be needing an electorate seat by the looks of it. As for advance, well... It looks a bit more like a retreat into the background. The party is barely registering. And as for any dreams that Belik Takahika will steal the Tetai Tokoro seat, well, he had 1% support in a poll of that seat done for Māori TV. Okay, I think now it's time for me to say, Eugene, what's been happening? Labour is promising a shake-up of the criminal justice system with a big emphasis on reducing the prison population and ditching the three-strikes law, which ramps up the consequences for repeat violent offenders. National says it will set up a special managed isolation system for vineyard workers to get foreign workers into the country to help the wine industry. And the great cheese roll scandal of election 2020 has had a sequel. Bear with me. So, a bit of background first. Our stuff colleague, Hamish McNeely, based in Dunedin, he's all across cheese roll consumption whenever party leaders roll into town. Generally what happens is, sooner or later, said visiting politician will engineer a photo op with that southern, cheesy, bready delicacy. So, on Thursday it was all lined up that Collins would visit a cafe in Mosgill, which had prepared jumbo cheese rolls, especially for the occasion. But, shock horror, plans changed and Collins was a no-show. Scandal! One of the local national candidates scooted down to the cafe to make amends and have his photo op with the cafe staff instead. Anyway, the sequel. When Collins visited Blenheim yesterday, a cafe there presented her with a cheese roll with a message saying, good luck. 
So that's your concluding political anecdote. Someone made a cheese sandwich, someone else didn't eat it, and then someone else made another one. It's not a sandwich. It's a cheese roll. Take this seriously, Adam. So this election features a couple of referendums, and that's not especially unusual. Over the years, there have been referendums on a bunch of things, from constitutional issues like the term of parliament. We were asked about that in 1967 and 1990. And don't forget, a referendum was part of the whole process of a switching to MMP in the 1990s. There have been liquor licensing ones, and who could forget the great flag debate question? Dole's a Kiwi. Yeah. And there have been some more unusual ones. Like in 1949, there was a referendum on off-course betting, whether you could bet on horse races away from the track. It won with a healthy 68% in favour, by the way. I wonder what the odds were on that. Sometimes referendums are done as standalone things. Sometimes they're bundled together with a general election. And this year isn't even the first time that we've been asked two referendum questions at election time. At the 1999 election, there was one around reducing the size of parliament and one around justice reforms. Those referendums were part of the reason the vote counting in 1999 was a shambles with huge delays in getting results for the general election. That's why this year, the Electoral Commission won't be counting the referendum results on the night. So, in other words, don't expect to find out the results on October 17. Preliminary results will be announced on October 30, with final results on November 6. Yeah, so this year's referenda... Referendums... ...are... Do you support the End of Life Choice Act 2019 coming into force? And you said yes or no. And do you support the proposed Cannabis Legislation and Control Bill? And again, that's a yes or a no. And there's a little bit of jargon to unpick inside those questions. Yeah, so the euthanasia question, you might have noticed, talks about the End of Life Choice Act. That's because a law has already been passed by Parliament, and it's subject to the outcome of the referendum. In other words, if the majority vote yes the law will come into force in 12 months' time, regardless of who wins the election. Whereas the cannabis question, there's a bill at the centre of that. So a bill is a proposed law. It hasn't been passed by Parliament. So what the question asks is, hey, here's a bit of law we're considering. What do you guys think? But it won't automatically become law if the referendum passes. Any changes to cannabis laws would still have to go through Parliament and select committees and things like that to actually come into force. Right, so there's been a lot of noise and a lot of campaigning from people about the referenda, and obviously, as an election podcast, we wanted to do a show on them, but we wanted to do something a bit different. So the idea we had was box pops. You know, reporter runs around, asks random people for their opinions. So what's so different about that? Well, we've got a slight twist on this. We went and asked people not for their opinions, but for questions. So earlier this week, we wandered around a few streets. And a beach. And a beach with a couple of microphones chatting to people to find out what they wanted to know about the two referenda. Some of the things people were wondering were really deep and almost philosophical. Sometimes people realise mid question that. They already knew the answer. Yeah, how do I work out well, how, the, the pros and cons? For, well, I know what to do really, don't I? Make a list, pros and cons for each side, and then make my decision. And of course, not everyone could understand us. I'm from Russia. You're from Russia? Oh, uh, Siberia. Siberia. Oh, Siberia, wow. Ah, cold. Yeah, you're enjoying the sun. But most often, we found that people have really interesting, insightful questions and thoughts. And some of those questions were quite fundamental. 
Like, my name is Camila Guarnizo, and I want to know how do I vote for the referendum. Okay, I think we can answer this one. So when you get your voting papers at the polling place, they'll give you the referendum papers as well as the general election papers. In other words, you vote on the referendums at the same time as you cast your candidate and party votes in the general election. And just a side note, it's not compulsory to vote in the referenda. So if you wanted to only cast your general election vote and not vote in the referendum, that's fine. Actually, I suppose the opposite is true too. You could just vote in the referenda and not the general election. Either way, just take all those papers and fill in the ones you want to vote in. But on behalf of the TikTok podcast, I would like to recommend that you exercise your democratic rights fully and vote with all the ticks. Okay, this next question is a bit trickier. My name's Chris. I'm interested to know what effect the advertising campaigns is having on both sides of the argument for both referendums. Are we in a position where I guess we could potentially be like uh, America where the more money that gets thrown at something, the greater chance it has of being voted for and do we want that? Is that something we want as New Zealanders? Hmm. That's a really deep question. It would be great to see some research done on that. You know, to what extent the campaigning around the referenda actually influenced or influences voters. But we can sort of answer one technical aspect of that. Yeah, so like the general election campaign, the Electoral Commission has strict rules around promoting either side of the debate in both referendums. If you're going to try to persuade voters one way or the other, you need to include a promoter statement so people know who is pushing that particular message. And that's for transparency's sake. There are also spending limits. If you spend more than $13,600 over the two months leading up to the vote, you need to register with the Electoral Commission. And that register is a public document, so anyone could go to the Electoral Commission website and have a look. If you spend more than $100,000, you need to file an expense return with the Commission, and you can't spend any more than $338,000 per referendum. You've probably seen all the hoardings and billboards up and, and maybe seen ads online or on telly or in newspapers and so on. There are lots of groups promoting one side or the other, yes or no, in both referenda, which is what makes it quite tricky finding neutral answers to the questions we collected from the street and the beach. So we've turned to our colleagues who have been doing excellent reporting on the Stuff website. Hannah Martin, I'm a health reporter at Stuff, uh, who is looking into the coverage on the End of Life Choice Act referendum. And Joel McManus, I'm a reporter for Stuff and I've been part of the team covering the cannabis referendum. Okay, let's start with the cannabis referendum, the one that asks... Do you support the proposed cannabis legislation and control bill? Let's see what answers Joel has for our Vox Poppers. I'm Shani. Um, why can't we buy it online? Um, so the bill we're voting on in the referendum, the government has released sort of the proposed bill and the proposed rules. This still could change. Uh, in the current form, the law would allow people over the age of 20 to buy cannabis from licensed outlets. Uh, you can buy up to a maximum of 14 grams per day in one purchase. You can also grow up to two plants at home with a maximum of four plants per household. The rules in the proposed bill don't allow online sales, which has actually been a little bit controversial. For example, you know, when you're talking about rural communities uh, and people that live, you know, well away from the nearest licensed outlet, that could mean, you know, a several hour drive for people that want to buy cannabis. And, you know, if, if people are doing that for medical concerns or, or pain relief, that could obviously put quite a lot of 
uh, stress on them, especially when they can only buy 14 grams in one go. This could potentially change if the referendum were to pass. The, the details would be ironed out in Parliament before it actually became legal. So it could potentially change. But as it stands now, online sales won't be allowed. Just the point of where you can buy them from under this bill. What, what are the places called? I think you refer to them as licensed premises. Um, yeah, so you, you're going to have a number of licensed premises, potentially around 400 around the country. They would you know, have a number of stringent regulations and whatnot that they would need to uh, be approved in, in order to sell. You're looking at physical buildings. Right. You know, somewhat similar to a liquor store, except, you know, there will be stricter regulations and they won't be as prevalent. OK. All right. That's a good answer, I think. So on to the next one. Uh, Dino, I think. Yeah. Uh, my name's Dino and I just want to know about the uh, marijuana referendum and uh, is it going to be more for the medicinal side of things or... We'll just jump in there. There's a very simple answer to that, isn't there? Yeah. So medical cannabis has been officially legal to buy in New Zealand since April of this year. Um you will have seen uh, potentially some of the advertising for this referendum talking about medicinal needs. Uh, the New Zealand Drug Foundation, which is in favour of the yes vote, has been pushing that. That's largely because the current medicinal cannabis that is available is really expensive. The The only currently approved product is a nasal spray called Sativex, which can cost about $1,000 a month. So... Some medicinal users are still supporting this referendum because it would essentially make it cheaper and easier for them to access. Okay, all right. We'll carry on with Dino's question. And I just want to know what's going to happen with monitoring and controlling the growth of the marijuana and the sale of the marijuana in the plant form because, you know, I don't want to see it being mixed, you know, with, you know, meth or anything like that there. I want to know what the control is going to be um, on the on the actual the growing of the marijuana. Yeah, Dino raises a really good question because obviously in the current black market environment, that is a fear that a lot of people have that something they buy might be laced with, with some sort of strange product. Uh, so under the proposed bill, what we'll see is a new government agency formed called the Cannabis Regulatory Authority. Uh, they will set the rules around the products, like what needs to be on the label, how strong products can be, when new products come to market, what's going to be allowed to be sold. Uh, so the initial limits we're seeing suggested, which again could change, are that a 15% THC is the maximum for regular herb cannabis. And uh, you're talking five milligrams per package for edible products. Um, so for context on how strong that is, it's obviously hard to tell what most weed in New Zealand is at the moment because, again, it's on the black market. But 15% is probably about average or slightly below. You can get some product as high as about 25. There's also specialty concentrates, which can be way higher. I'd compare this to a situation where beer and wine would be allowed, but you can't get whiskey. Right, and that cannabis authority overseeing everything and controlling everything. Yeah, so they would have the, again, the authority to change rules as they come or introduce new products or ban products as, as they go, similar to the way alcohol is, is right. regulated. Okay, who's next, Adam? Someone called Roger. My name is Roger Hall. In the referendum about legalising or decriminalising cannabis, people don't seem to ask whether more people will use cannabis or fewer. Uh, first point, Roger hmm. Hall is... It's the real Roger Hall, the one there who wrote Gliding On and a great deal of other things. He just happened to be walking down the street and had a view. So... Adam knew him, so we stopped him. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Anyway, sorry, good question, 
Roger, uh, what's the answer, Joel? So to clarify, this referendum is about legalisation, uh, not decriminalisation. Decriminalisation would essentially continue the, the largely black market environment, but you know people would not face criminal convictions if they were found uh, in possession of cannabis. Legalisation is regulating and putting controls on the sale of cannabis and to, to sell in, in real stores. Right. And, and as to his question about more people using or fewer people using, do we know much? Yeah, it's actually a tricky question because obviously there's not a lot of places in the world uh, that have legalised cannabis and the places that have have done it relatively recently, so the data is still being gathered. Two good examples to look at are Colorado and Washington in the United States. They both legalised in 2012 at a referendum. The data we've seen there tends to show a slight increase in the number of adults who have consumed cannabis. One study in Colorado, the number of adults who had consumed cannabis in the last month rose from 13% to 17% over the last five years. In Canada, it was it was similar. We saw about a 1% to 2% rise over the last year since it was legalised. It does seem to suggest more people are using it, but certainly not significant numbers. It's not like suddenly everyone in the country is just is just smoking up all the time. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because of that black market at the moment, there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, exactly. And any surveys done asking people about you know their cannabis consumption, you know, naturally has some issues in a, in a black market environment. People aren't going to want to admit to that. But if it's legal, suddenly, you know, people are a bit more open to it. So it is a bit of a tricky question. Massey University does that study, don't they, where they ask about drug use. Do, do you happen to know what we know about cannabis use at the moment? Um, yeah, so the data we've currently got, there's one Otago University study which found that 80% of New Zealanders had tried cannabis before. Another poll recently found 56% of New Zealanders had tried cannabis, and of those, 12% were regular consumers, which would generally tend to line up with the data we see from overseas. Yeah, again, Canada and the US, you largely see roughly between 10 and 20% of the population consider themselves you know, regular cannabis users, as in they, they might use it once a month at least. All right, next question. This is Jim. Um, Jim Hall is my name, yep. Ultimately, will this have a worse effect on lower socioeconomic Polynesian young people than the status quo at the moment? So I guess that question is around harm, I guess in terms of health and criminal prosecutions. What would happen, do you think, and have people looked at this? Yeah, so the police do have a tool called the Drug Harm Index, which estimates the social cost of various drugs. The social cost to New Zealand of cannabis is sitting at about $1.3 billion a year. Though the impact of that is very different to other drugs such as methamphetamine in that largely those aren't health costs. They're costs to society in terms of you know crime and um, feeding the black market and whatnot, which is a major concern in the cannabis space because that's how you buy it at the moment. What we do know about Polynesian youth, they are statistically more likely to smoke cannabis than the general population. And we have seen that for, for people that start smoking cannabis under the age of 16, there are some health impacts there. So those Polynesian youth are certainly at more risk right now from, from a health perspective. The question comes down to whether the restrictions under the proposed law would make it harder for youth to access than the situation right now. The other obvious 
issue for Polynesian youth is uh, policing in terms of being disproportionately targeted and disproportionately more likely to be charged for cannabis offences. Uh, so last year, there were just under 6,000 charges for cannabis offences in New Zealand. That number has decreased by quite a lot over the last decade. But of those people, 44% were Māori and 10% were Pacifica. So that's a hugely disproportionate uh, number of people facing criminal charges for cannabis possession and possession of cannabis pipes and whatnot. And, and of course, that's been one of the big points that's been made by the yes vote people, isn't it, is around reducing criminal prosecutions against Māori and Pacific people. Exactly. And you do see that bear out in the polling. Mm. Polling consistently shows massive support among Māori. We're talking high 60s, low 70s uh, percent in terms of support for this referendum. So that, that clearly shows that Māori communities are feeling the impact of, of this policing and, you know, want to see reform. All right, and our last question. Hi, my name's Lisa. My biggest concern is how we're going to control the use of it with youth in schools and what sort of screening we have from the school should they be using it the weekends or after hours. Okay, pretty straightforward question there. What do you, what do you think? Well, right off the bat for teenagers, not a lot will change. Cannabis is illegal now and it will be continue to be illegal for people under the age of 20. Right. As a whole, uh, when you're looking at teenage use of cannabis in New Zealand, it is going down, and it has consistently been going down for the last couple of decades. But that's tied to a number of other social indicators. Teens are using less alcohol. We're seeing less teen pregnancy, other situations like that. When you look at places that have legalised, Colorado and Washington again, we see the same decline. Uh, teenagers are consistently using less cannabis and continue to after legalisation. But it's hard to necessarily tie that to legalisation because it has been declining for a long time. So under the proposed bill, uh, there will be really strict rules around supplying cannabis to people under the age of 20. You're talking of up to a four-year prison term for selling cannabis to someone under the age of 20. Wow. There's also provisions around smoking and vaping cannabis in places in the presence of people under the age of 20. For teenagers who are found in possession of cannabis, the rules are different. They're not going to be hit with the, the hard arm of the law. A person under the age of 20 found in possession will not face conviction. They'll see a health-based response. You know, you're talking education, uh, social services, possibly a small fee or fine. But it's, it's really clear that the government is not trying to throw the book at people and, you know, see a whole lot of teenagers with criminal records for cannabis possession. Lisa also talked about screening of kids for drugs, which made me wonder about drug testing in workplaces. Will that continue in the same sort of vein as it has while cannabis was illegal? Yeah, there's actually some interesting studies out of Canada about this. So obviously cannabis use in the workplace depends massively on what kind of workplace it is. If you're driving heavy machinery, you naturally do not want someone on cannabis. If you're a marketing creative, you know, it's probably not <laughs> probably not super concerning. <laughs> so in Canada, you know, there, there, I think these studies showed about 8% of workplaces actually allowed cannabis or, or weren't, you know, weren't particularly concerned. And in general, the, the number of people consuming cannabis before work was very, very low, nowhere near that. The difference, I guess, what you're looking at here is that a number of workplaces that 
uh, again, like work on heavy machinery right now, will do urine tests and whatnot, which can pick up any form of cannabis use from the last two weeks. So you're, you're not really testing whether someone's showing up to work high. You're, you're testing whether someone has ever consumed cannabis, mm-hmm. uh, which will, you know, need some potential changes if, it, if it's legalized because, you know, it's perfectly fine for someone to be smoking cannabis outside of work if it's legal, just as long as they're not showing up to work impaired. Uh, that probably means, you know, the need for better testing systems in some workplaces. Blood testing or saliva testing is a lot more accurate in terms of picking up recent use than a urine test. But the other thing that we really see is that employees become a lot more open to it when it's legal, that they're not trying to hide their use from their workplaces, so that they're far more comfortable telling their boss, yeah, I might have used two weeks ago, but I, you know, I'm certainly fine now, or something like that. It, it makes it more open and available for people to talk about. Do you know what chance there is of the referendum succeeding? It's been really hard to tell at the moment because a number of polls have been all over the place. Mm. Uh, we've seen two polls in the last week from UMR and Horizon showing it passing. Colmar Brunton, One News, had it failing by 18 points. So it's really inconsistent the general trend doesn't show the uh, the likelihood of it passing being super strong. The the polling average does show it failing, um, but it, it's again going to come down to turnout. The mm. the demographics most likely to support cannabis are, like I said, Māori, younger voters, lower income voters. Those also happen to be the demographics least likely to turn out to vote. So the chances of it passing on election day have a lot to do with what turnout looks like. Okay, thanks, Joel. That's really, really interesting. Do you have anywhere that you'd suggest people go to to get more information if they want to find out more? So there's a number of organisations which have been campaigning fairly heavily on this. On the on the yes side, the New Zealand Drug Foundation has been largely leading the charge. You've also got the Helen Clark Foundation and a few other organisations. The big organisation on the no side is a group called Say Nope to Dope. They're a collection of... Uh, religious groups and f- various uh, lobby organisations and anti-drug campaigners that have sort of teamed up to push the no vote. Uh, the government's referendums website is probably your best place to go to in terms of you know complete unbiased information. But otherwise, stuff has a fantastic cannabis section, <laughs> which I'd highly recommend reading. Very good. Thanks so much, Joel. All right. Cheers, guys. Right, next, the euthanasia referenda. Referendum. Stop, stop it. No, 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 seriously, it's just one referendum, singular. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the question for that one is, do you support the End of Life Choice Act 2019 coming into force? Here's Hannah answering the questions we collected. Hi, my name's Nadine. I actually would like to know how tight they're going to make the rules to actually introduce the bill so that they don't have the situation abused or the system abused. All right. It's a, it's a good question. It's a big question. In essence, the Act is very specific in who it is for and who it applies to. The main parameters being that it is for terminally ill New Zealanders who have less than six months to live. So these people, as it is described in the Act, need to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability and need to be in unbearable suffering that cannot be eased in a manner that they feel is tolerable. 
Uh, they also need to be competent and able to understand and make an informed decision about assisted dying. So those restrictions, those regulations do mean that we are talking about what is likely to be quite a small group of the New Zealand population. And in terms of, so I've decided that that's what I want to do, what are the steps that need to be taken before it can actually happen? What you do is is you make this decision, you uh, broach the conversation with your healthcare practitioner, and whether they want to actually be involved in the process is, is something quite different, and we'll come to that later. But they need to then assess that you meet a number of criteria. So your age, whether you're a citizen, a permanent resident, uh, and these parameters around terminal illness, then they need to assess your competence, uh, and so does a second medical practitioner. If they both agree that you are eligible, you then pick a time, a place, a method for ingestion, essentially what you want your death to look like. Uh, if they are not sure, they call in a third option, a psychiatrist who then assesses your, your competence to make this decision. Nadine, I hope that answers your question. Who's next? Peter. I'm Peter. Is there going to be enough support for these people? Not necessarily any groups that are tied to um, a political party or a religious group or, you know, an end of life pressure group, but just, you know, a, a lovely balance kind of support that everyone would need in that situation, I think I would. So I think what he's saying is what information is going to be available, what support's going to be available? Mm, that's another interesting question. So other than accountability and the systems that are being set up through the Act to ensure compliance uh, among doctors, uh, there aren't actually any systems or support specified for whānau. So... I guess in a situation where you've got a person who is terminally ill and who likely has been unwell for some time, these people may be in the care of hospice, uh, may be receiving palliative care support, or likely have a, a group of specialists, you know, a team around them. If someone then is wanting to go down this path to access assisted dying, the idea would be that the external support that they receive from their friends, their family, their whānau, their healthcare workers, that that would be the wraparound, uh, but the Act does not actually specify any particular supports. Okay, all right. Let's hear from Linda. Hi there, my name's Linda. In relation to euthanasia, my questions and concerns were um, that I saw a poster which says you don't need to have parental approval. My concern is that some young kids might be suicidal and they might think, OK, I'm going to go down that line and they might think that's the right way. But then I, when I revisited it, I'm thinking, no, this will only be for if you, you've got cancer or something along those lines, leukaemia. But my thoughts were... If I had a child and he was suffering and he was 18 and he said, well, I don't need your approval, I'm just going to go with this, I would be concerned about that. So Linda's got that concern about age and the age limits and, and what would happen if somebody who was 18 uh, wanted to go through with it. Uh, yes, I've seen some of those billboards myself which are saying that young people can access a, a lethal dose without a parental consent or parental knowledge. I think, though, it is important to remember that 18-year-olds uh, in a legal context are considered adults in many different areas in New Zealand. But these are 18-year-olds who, again, are suffering from terminal illness. That's really key here. So these are not 18-year-olds who are... Uh, potentially struggling in other facets that come with being a young person. These are people who are sick uh, and who have less than six months to live. So under the Act, uh, a doctor needs to ensure that a person 
of whatever age has had the opportunity to discuss their wishes with their friends and family. However, people are not obliged to do so. So there is nothing in the Act that says a patient, a person needs to consult with anyone. Uh, the decision is theirs. So doctors do need to make sure that the opportunity has been taken. But hypothetically, yes, a person could access assisted dying without telling their wider friends and family. However, again, if this is an 18-year-old that we're talking about who, say, has cancer or another long-term a debilitating and, and degenerative condition, uh, I would suspect that family would likely be involved in these conversations. Mm. Okay, but there's nothing specified in the Act. So how did they come to the age of 18? So I, I do know that the age of 18 was a, a bit of a point of contention. The Royal College of GPs, actually in their submission to the Select Committee a couple of years ago, recommended that the bill be amended to the age of 25. So that's in keeping with the idea that, you know, the brain is not fully formed mm. at 18 and that at 25 you are more competent and more aware of the sorts of issues that come with making informed decisions about your care. However, I think, you know, generally speaking, you're considered an adult at 18 in many other respects of life, which I believe is why they have done it this way. Next question. So my name's Shivanti, so I don't know whether at the end of their life whether they are able to make that decision for themselves. Mm. So that question of competence and mm. ability to make the decision. Yes, okay. So competence is a really key part of uh, assessing eligibility under the Act. The, the person who is asking for assisted dying needs to be able to show that they understand all of the information that's being given to them, that they can retain it, uh, that they can use it and weigh it to make an informed decision, and then that they can communicate that back. So competence is really key and part of determining the eligibility to access assisted dying under the Act. What if you've got difficulty communicating, perhaps because, you know, you've got an illness which has affected your, your mouth or throat? Mm. Um, how do you communicate these wishes? There's no specific means by which you need to communicate. It doesn't need to be verbal. It can be written down. Similarly, if you then decide that you don't want to take part, you can also uh, opt out in a, in a means that does not need to be verbal. There are no specific words in the Act that you need to say, no particular phrasing or terminology. It is just that you can show that you you can communicate. As with asking your medical professional to access assisted dying, it's the patient's decision at every step along the way. So they are the ones who get to determine when they would like to access assisted dying, what that might look like, the method, the time, the place. Uh, everything is up to the individual person. And they can actually at any point change their minds. So even if a prescription has been written out, even if it's 30 seconds from when they had intended to actually take the dose, they are able to back out. They can change their minds and under the Act, the healthcare professional, whether that's a, a doctor or a nurse practitioner, needs to stop immediately. Next one. My name is Kamala. Just asking about whether the family member is more important or a doctor. Okay. So Kamal is asking who's more important in the decision-making process, the family member or the doctor, which mm. I guess gets to that question of coercion and people being put under pressure. What does the Act say about that? The decision itself rests solely with the person at the centre of this. Um, so family need not be involved under the Act, though I suspect, you know, obviously through the encouragement to do so that they will be involved in these conversations. Um, but one of the big issues, one of the big concerns that is being raised about the Act from 
a number of groups is the issue of coercion. Uh, so coercion isn't the word that they use in the Act. They refer to pressure. But written into the Act uh, is the notion that doctors need to do their best to ensure that a person is making the decision free from any external pressure. What that looks like and the conversations that happen around that are going to be very individual. People have raised the concern, though, that coercion is very difficult to detect at times, can be very subtle, but the idea is that through the eligibility process, through determining someone's uh, fitness, competence to make a decision, that in those conversations a doctor should be able to glean whether they believe there is any pressure coming from any external parties and under the Act is, is also then required to completely stop the process and to notify the registrar. Uh, which is a role that is set up from the uh, Ministry of Health, the Director General of Health, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, will appoint a registrar should this should this come into force and that process will stop if they believe that there is any coercion. Okay. And the pressure can go both ways, can't it? It can be, you know, grandma has made the decision, the family don't want her to go through with it. They can't overrule her. Yeah, that's correct. The, the decision rests squarely on the person who is making that call. The Act also doesn't allow for any advanced directives. What's an advanced directive? Uh, so that is a person making their wishes clear ahead of time about what they want the end of their life to look like. That doesn't suffice here. You know, having a, a piece of paper written down 10 years earlier, for example, right. wouldn't cut the mustard here. Okay. Which is interesting because the classic conversation is, if I ever get to the stage of X, Y, Z, of not knowing who I am or whatever it might be, you know, sort me out, please, yes. sort of thing. Uh, and people say it in a jokey kind of way, but they also mean it reasonably seriously. Mm. But that whole category of, if I get to this point, do that, that's out. Yeah. Hannah, thank you. Those are great answers to those questions that people had. Is there anything else that people should know? You've mentioned doctors, mm. for instance, a couple of times. Yes, yeah, so the role of the doctor is an important one under the Act. Now, it's important to note that doctors are not obliged to take part in assisted dying if they do not want to do so. Any doctor can conscientiously object. What they then need to do, though, if, if they have been approached by a patient, is uh, ensure that that person has access to the name and details of another doctor who is willing to help them in that process. And there is an external agency, there would be an external agency set up by government which would oversee this should the Act pass, which would hold on to the, the contact details of doctors who are happy to take part in the scheme. One thing I'm curious about, you mentioned at one point ingestion. Are the methods for the euthanasia specified in the Act? Uh, so methods are, yes, uh, the methods are specified, but the particular drugs that may be used are not specified. That is more to do with the fact that if this were to pass into law over time, the drugs that they use may change. Uh, so they But didn't... it's always drugs. Yes, correct. So there are four methods that are detailed in the Act. So the first one is ingestion, so self-ingestion, where you take the dose yourself. In Australia, in Victoria, which has had assisted dying for a little over a year, the most common method is a drink, a suspension of a drug called pentobarbital, which is in a liquid and you drink it. Uh, so yes, you can either self-ingest, you can have the uh, drug administered intravenously, so into a vein through a needle, uh, which you administer to yourself. 
then there are two methods that allow for a medical professional to administer this to you, say you're unable to do so yourself. Um, so one is ingestion through a tube, which is triggered by a, a medical practitioner, and the other is is another intravenous injection, which the medical practitioner would administer. Do we have any idea of the, the numbers of people that we'd be talking about who this would affect? It is hard to say in New Zealand. You know, proponents of the Act do say that because of the restrictions and the scope of who this applies to, that we are talking about a small number of people here. Uh, we do know from looking at Victoria that uh, in the first year that they had assisted dying laws and, and quite similar laws to what is proposed in New Zealand, that 124 people accessed assisted dying. 104 of those were able to take the lethal dose themselves and 20 uh, had that administered by a healthcare professional. It's not a, an insignificant number, but it is a small group. And how does Victoria's population compare to New Zealand's population? Yeah, so Victoria is, has a larger population than New Zealand. They're at about 6.7 million. Uh, so compared to, to New Zealand, uh, it would mean roughly sort of 80 to 85 people could potentially access this. Um, but again, that is just a, an estimate. Hannah, that's great information for people trying to decide. But if they still have some questions of their own, where's a good neutral place to go to to find out more about the Act and so on? First of all, you can go straight to the top and read the Act itself. Mm -hmm. um, and you can access that online? Yes, you can. Yep. If you just look up the End of Life Choice Act, it will come up. Yes, it is sort of, uh, you know, legalese, but it's all there uh, and it, it should hopefully cover off most of your questions. The government does have a separate website for the different referendums. Referendum. Uh, including a, a sort of summary of the End of Life Choice Act, which really breaks it down into different questions, almost like an explainer piece. Uh, though, of course, Stuff has been working on an ongoing series of stories to explain the Act. Uh, so if you have any questions, uh, visiting the Stuff website and looking up the euthanasia debate should, should help. Great. Thank you very much, Hannah. Thank you. Okay, so hopefully that's some good information for you there and some places to go if you want to find out more. But let's remember too that these referendums have come about because there are people who want the law to change. So we decided to wrap up this episode by going back to them and asking them to explain why they want people to vote yes. We figured that in a way the onus is on them. So we went to two MPs who have been pushing for these changes and said, you've got 90 seconds, give us your best argument as to why someone who's still undecided should vote yes. First up, let's hear from ACT leader David Seymour on euthanasia. Voting yes on the End of Life Choice Act referendum is really a question of what sort of society we want to be. We know that some people suffer terribly at the end of life despite the best palliative care. I travelled literally from Kerry Kerry to Gore campaigning for this law and I heard so many of those stories that we need change. We need to give people the kind of control and dignity in their death that they've had throughout their life. There's also a question of whether this law is safe. I want to tell you unequivocally that it is a safe law. It has more safeguards and legal requirements than any other end-of-life decision-making process by a long shot. Uh, and I don't have time to go through all of the details in this short pitch, but just ask yourself, if it was really as bad as certain opponents who would say anything want you to believe, how is it possible that after 15 years of having a much more liberal law, 88% of Dutch people and the Royal Dutch Medical Society still support their law? The only way that's possible is if the law is safe 
and it gives compassion and choice to people who badly need it. I hope that you will vote yes to make New Zealand a compassionate society in this respect too. And on the cannabis question, Green MP Chloe Swarbrick. The cannabis legalisation and control referendum is not about whether you like, use or support cannabis. The cannabis legalisation and control referendum is about what kind of legal response we want to the substance of cannabis. Cannabis which can cause harm. So we need to recognise that our legal response can either aggravate or mitigate that harm. Right now, under cannabis prohibition, the Prime Minister Chief Science Advisor's report shows that nobody who wants it isn't getting their hands on cannabis. And arguably, the situation is all the more harmful because you have black market dealers that do not check ID, do not care for the potency nor the quality of their product. Under a legally regulated market, there would be duties of care. There would be limitations on who could access it, a limit of R20, for example, purchase limits. There would be taxation, which could be ring-fenced and ploughed into mental health and addiction supports. Under the criminal status quo, you also have the horrible situation whereby there is disproportionate criminalization of Māori. 1,300 convictions for cannabis for Māori per year, despite knowing that 80% of New Zealanders will use cannabis by the time they're 21 years old. Don't we want to take this issue out of the dark, put it in the light and deal with it with maturity and evidence base to reduce that harm? Right, I think our work here is done. Ultimately, as Jacinda Ardern keeps saying, the decision is yours. Find out what you need to, get yourself informed and vote. Tick, tick. And tick, tick. Yeah. That was the Tick, Tick podcast. Mō te rahurui, whiringa unuku te kou. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Hannah Martin, Joel McManus and all the people who share their questions with us. Suzanne McFadden, Catherine George, Janine Fennick and Carol Hirschbell. You can find us on all the podcast platform, podcast platforms even. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Kakite kite a te rā, wiki, the last of the campaign. Mā te wā.